Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews donors, thought leaders, and professionals in the field of fundraising. Today's episode marks the beginning of season 10. If you've been here from the beginning, thank you for sharing this journey and for supporting the podcast. If you're new to the Development Debrief, we've been running for just over three years and have content with industry experts in nearly every corner of the fundraising profession. For this episode, we explore one thing I have been curious about for a long time, and that is the dynamic between the Chief Development Officer and the Board Chair. How do they talk to one another? Who ultimately makes the calls? But those conversations are often had in private. I am honored to open this season with Bob Lasher, Senior Vice President for Development at Dartmouth College, and Laurel Ritchie, Marketing, Communications, and Management Executive, as well as former Dartmouth Trustee and Board Chair. In the following 45 minutes, we have the privilege to hear Laurel and Bob talk about wins, stalls, pain points, and even women in philanthropy, my favorite, all during a multi-billion dollar campaign. Let's learn more about our guests. Laurel has more than three decades of experience in marketing, communications, general management, and corporate governance with a proven track record of reinvigorating business and brands in transition. A former trustee of the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, she currently serves on the boards of Synchrony Financial, Hasbro, Bright Horizons, and SeatGeek. She mentors Fortune 100 C-suite executives on matters of leadership and corporate culture with the Exco Group and consults with other select clients on branding, marketing, and communications. Richie lives in New York City, and she received a bachelor's degree in policy studies from Dartmouth College in 1981, where she chairs the advisory board of the Hopkins Center for the Arts after serving her alma mater as a member of the Board of Trustees from 2012 to 2021, and chair of the board from 2017 to 2021. Our second guest, Bob, has built a career helping teams realize their full potential and purpose. Bob is the senior vice president at Dartmouth and has led the global alumni relations and development organization for nine years. He is the chief staff member for and architect of The Call to Lead, Dartmouth's comprehensive campaign, which has twice increased its goal and now stands at 3.5 billion. Bob works at the intersection of brand, vision, and resources. His career has focused on enabling best-in-category nonprofit institutions to activate higher levels of ambition. He's held leadership roles at a diverse array of scientific, higher education, and cultural institutions, including SFMOMA, the San Francisco Symphony, the National Geographic Society, and the University of Virginia. Working in close collaboration with administrative and trustee leaders, he strives to illuminate strategic paths to greater mission impact, distinction, and differentiation. Now let's hear from these two amazing individuals who are quite literally called to lead. Hi, Bob. Hi, Laurel. Welcome to The Debrief. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. It's nice to be with you. So today we're going to be having a leadership conversation and really be learning about the relationship between the board chair and the head of advancement. So thank you both so much for coming on to talk about this important topic. 
Our pleasure. I'll speak for you, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I think we both feel pretty passionately about this topic, Catherine. So thanks for giving us time to think about it with you. Well, let's just get started. What should every board chair or someone on a board considering being a board chair appreciate about their relationship with the head of advancement? Now that, you know, we're multiple years into this, I've come to appreciate just how significant advancement is the function and the practice in the external visibility of the brand to those who know us and those who may be introduced to us and those on our campus. So I think I didn't quite appreciate the role that advancement plays kind of in partnership with admissions, right? They're the two most externally facing divisions and disciplines. And I think that that became more apparent to me as our relationship and the campaign and the process unfolded. And did your view of advancement change after taking that position? I think it expanded. You know, I think it, it went from perhaps a more narrow view to a much, you know, it was like the aperture of the, the lens expanded for me. It's a great metaphor. Another question for you, Laurel, how should board chairs think about the peer leadership of the campaign, for example, the campaign co-chairs and then the relationship to the board and the board chair. You know, I often go back and, and look at the bylaws of board of trustees and it while it will discuss service, giving, financial stability, it doesn't really specifically mention the role of the board in a campaign other than as a participant. And so I, I think... I now can't imagine not having the board chair serving in a leadership role of a campaign because it's the work is so interrelated, right? It's the mm -hmm. long-term view of where's the vision and strategy for the institution, how we prioritize initiatives. There's always more to do than we can possibly do at any given time, how we allocate resources, how we engage faculty, students, and alums and bring them into the work and understand where we're going and what the vision is. And once the president kind of sets a vision in partnership with the board, I think then sort of advancement and the board help bring that to life and help shepherd it through as the president is constantly battling long-term vision, day-to-day -day realities on campus. I, I often felt that through this work of this campaign, in partnership with Bob and his team, it just made it easier for the board and the advancement team to focus on actually realizing the long-term vision through our work. One of the things I observed about Laurel is that she was able to frame a campaign to a board sort of like a as a community exercise, right? We're mobilizing the entire organization around our common purpose and our mission. We've all been on those boardrooms where it feels like there's a group that owns the campaign and maybe there's a group that feels less connected to it. And I really was appreciating how much Laurel sort of had made sure that the, the group that looks at academic excellence felt that the core ideas of the campaign had emerged and, and was owned by, that, by their work. The communications folks understood the relationship between the brand and the campaign and our promotional and kind of reputational issues and opportunities in the campaign. So there are these connections around. And I go back to this, 
Laurel has a saying, which I love, which is like, let's all get in the canoe and start paddling forward, right? So um, everybody was in the canoe in this campaign. And I really love that because everybody then had a sense of ownership. Everybody had a paddle in their hand. Bob, maybe you could just give us some broad strokes of the campaign that you're talking about and what kind of goals you've been able to reach. We set the campaign around kind of three design questions. So the core one, obviously, is you know, how do you advance your mission? We had three bold goals for the institution, which are really thinking about Dartmouth's unique place in higher education as this fusion of a liberal arts college focused on quality teaching for the undergraduate and a powerful research university. And so how do we you know, amplify our distinction in that space? We thought about leadership at two levels. One is how do we prepare leaders for the world beyond? And, and what are the leadership positions that Dartmouth can assume and making a better society and a better world. So that was kind of how we framed the campaign, but there were these two other dimensions to it that we considered as well. One of them was, uh, and I remember this, Laurel, when we started chatting, right, about your role as a co-chair, it's like, what are our ambitions? What are, what's the legacy we wanna make for the institution? We decided that the big green would be a big tent, that we really wanted to be as inclusive in this campaign design as we possibly could. And then the other one was quite pragmatic, which was to say, Let's be ambitious. We have this New England modesty and humbleness about us. Maybe Catherine in New York, you, you guys, you know, walk with a bigger stride than we might in New England. <laughs> but we were really thinking about building capacity philanthropically. So we were trying to double the amount that we could raise per year on a um, sustainable basis so that we weren't really thinking so much. About, the campaign goal was three. Uh, we took it to three billion, started up being two and a half. It became three billion. We're at three and a half now as we in the final months. The real question was, can we build our capacity as an organization to sustain our ambitious mission agenda after the campaign? And I think that's where that's what's where we position ourselves for the years ahead. The idea of this tent is so inviting and warm and welcoming. And we'll talk more about that a little bit. But before we do. Laurel, I'd love to hear which came first, the invitation from the president to co-chair the campaign or the invitation from the board to serve as board of trustee chair and how did one inform the other? Because those are two pretty important positions. In truth, it feels like a big blur. Um, like I can't remember, like I, I feel like I joined the board and then it was just sort of like heads down and keep moving. But I believe the invitation to serve as one of the co-chairs came before the invitation to serve as chair of the board. You know, I, I had had a little bit of experience in fundraising in my role at Girl Scouts as chief marketing officer. I worked very closely with the head of advancement there and at the WMBA sponsorship was a big part of my work. But in terms of a, a true capital campaign of this magnitude, this this was a first for me. And I remember, I can distinctly remember my first conversation after Phil, the president of Dartmouth, extended the invitation. I was like picking up the phone to Bob and saying, okay, so before <laughs> I say yes, let's have a, con you know, where's the off the record? What, what are the expectations? Why me? What do you need from me? And sort of going through the list to make sure I really understood what what came along with yes. I knew I was going to say yes, but what came along with yes. And then the invitation to serve as chair of the board came after that. And I, I don't know, you know, in some ways, Bob, I'd be curious your take on this, but I, I think having served as a co-chair may have helped some of my board members see me in a different light. 
right? You know, I think I joined the board bringing expertise in marketing and communications and branding. And I spent a lot of time at the Hopkins Center. So the arts are critically important to me and were a big part of my experience. I bring my lived experience as a Black woman to the board and to any other thing I sign up for. But I think the campaign gave me exposure to some of my fellow board members who also served as co-chairs in a different way and to the board overall. So, I, you know, we'll never know and it's probably not important, but I'm just thinking that 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 probably was a data point in the board feeling comfortable um, putting my name forward for chair. I think there are two other dimensions I just add to that. One is I, I'm really struck by in this world of Marvel Comics, the kind of superhero team that you put together in terms of there's Laurel looked at sort of the head of our finance committee who had really brought this incredible financial understanding of the institution to the campaign. And that was very helpful for investors. There was also the trustee that led our endowment investment committee at the time was on it. And then the other two co-chairs are people who have just had incredible records of volunteer service that were really widely respected and known for you know putting in a hundred times the the effort. And so it's really interesting in terms of the group that was assembled as the co-chairs, they had this deep credibility on the board and also brought expertise to the thinking around the campaign. So I, I think that's significant. And then the other piece I would just say, Laurel, maybe this was helpful to you as you took on the board role, but at the start of any campaign, as you know, Catherine, you're out in these small salon settings discussing the institution and and not only are you sharing the hopes and dreams that are coming from the president's vision, but you're also hearing about the community's aspirations. What do they love? What do they feel strongly about? And, and where are their wishes? And I think that Laurel's ability to represent that on the boardroom was also really powerful. Representing the board's aspirations to the community, but also the community's aspirations to the board and constantly making sure that they were aligned and, and in working in concert with each other and leveraging each other. Laurel, you said you were probably going to say yes, no matter what, but you did have this phone call and you had these questions for Bob. This is such a great peak for us to kind of get your perspective. When we ask someone to step into a role so big, we need to be ready to answer the questions around the intentionality of why this person What were some of the things that you heard, if you remember, that gave you that sure feeling that this was right? How can we as fundraisers think about that conversation with our leadership? First, the speed with which Bob either picked up the phone or returned the call spoke volumes to me, right? So part of this is you want to know that if you're signing up for something that you know is going to be important work and a heavy lift, you want to know that you've got a lifeline, right? And that you've got a partner in the work. So I I remember feeling great about just the response and the speed of the response, the freedom to ask any question I had from the smallest, how much time, what kind of travels involved, the little nits that can sometimes get in the way if you don't understand them up front to the larger aspirations, right? You know, I, I, I remember trying work having questions about you know how bold did we want to be how audacious did we want to be so to understand and sort of have a meeting of the minds around the aspiration for the campaign bob and i very quickly through that discussion had a meeting of the minds around if we do this right 
it'll elevate Dartmouth's presence, role, and impact in society. And that was a, a, a point of connection for us. The other thing that I wanted to understand, it's a little bit of why me? Like, what what do you, um, yeah. not that I'm a shrinking violet, but sort of what <laughs> what what is it that you want from me so that I'm clear on how I might contribute to that? And I think we both felt that there was an opportunity to fine tune our positioning and use that as a foundation and a source of inspiration upon which we could build a vision of the future. I remember Bob asking me what I wanted to accomplish and what would success look like for me and recognizing the amount of time that I was about to contribute to the campaign, what was going to be important to me personally. And we had an, a, another place of connection for us is it really, for me, was about a vision of more women, more people of color being included in the campaign and feeling part of the campaign, both in terms of the initiatives we identified, but also in terms of the volunteer leadership and in terms of those who chose to make gifts to Dartmouth. Those were the two points where I said, yep, I got it. I know, the th I know what I can bring to this. And I know where I can have a very distinct piece of impact that's good for the institution, but will also feed my soul. What I took from that conversation was how important it was for the person in my role to be able to demonstrate a credible sense of possibility. And I say, I say that with real intention because credible means, you know, anybody like in Laurel's world that's going to commit the time to this wants to be successful. Right. And so they're looking to us as the professionals to be confident in the, in the path forward and to be able to, to say that this will, will be a success. And then the possible is to say that the concrete's not dry yet. You know, we, we can shape this together. And I'm actually really interested in what you uniquely can bring to this proposition. And for me, that's, that's when some of the sparks have really flown. We've just done some really cool things together. So the campaign was called Call to Lead. How much of this, the inclusion and the tent idea came from Laurel versus was already kind of part of the plan? There's a sensibility about Dartmouth, which is very much a, a collaborative team place. I think about all the leadership's experiences that each of us have had as alumni tend to be from the side, from the back, from the front as well. Like we kind of move around in teams there. So I think this idea that, that we would do it together as a community is kind of baked into the culture of the place. It also, it's interesting, Catherine, because it, it starts from our hundred years ago, we started our annual fund. It's called the Dartmouth College Fund. And it came from this moment in history when the central building on campus burned to the ground. And the alumni council at the time sent out a, what they called a summons to all alumni around the world to send in donations to build the building back. Wow. And so there's this, this this sense of the collective, right? And so from that exercise, then the next year they started the annual fund and we've had this extraordinary participation rate, you know, in the close to 50% of alumni over the course of hundred years. It's a distinction for Dartmouth. And so we, I think we really built the campaign around that premise. Now, I think the world has taught us that inherent in those systems are, uh, we're not bringing everybody to the table. And so it was only really when I got into the conversations with Laurel, did we actually start to define the spaces where there were possibilities to bring in new constituencies, new voices, and to start to do the work. And Laurel, I don't know if you want to reflect on any of those groups and kind of, you know, where that started, but 
that that was really that's when the campaign really started to accelerate in my opinion you know i look at once the sort of campaign leadership and co-chairs were identified and we began to work together at that level then we looked at the the regional leadership teams and i think we were very intentional there about making sure that it was representative, right? That not only were these people who had capacity, but they were passionate, that they were respected within the community. And we continued throughout the campaign to add to the core group of volunteers who were on the ground leading this. And I think that was really important that we were constantly looking at at the leadership team and saying, how can we enhance this? Is this representative? Does it reflect the full Dartmouth community? And and I, I like the fact that we never considered anything done or anything written in stone. It was it was an iterative process where we kept going back to our principles and our priorities and revisiting them and saying, can we do better? Are we staying true to them? So for me, it was exciting to see the composition of the leadership morph and change over the course of the campaign, but also the initiatives, right? They changed a little bit midstream. And that's kind of bold, I think, when when the finish line is in sight to say to take a step back and say, I think there might be a couple pieces missing. Let's add them in. We, like every other institution and group of people, you know, had a moment of reflection with the series of murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. We had to take a step back and really look at our initiatives, look at our community, which was interesting. Culture was a priority for the board and participation and community were, were priorities for the campaign. And so it became a nice way to have that conversation separately but together and create a new a, a new series of initiatives that were born out of that. The other thing that was just a, a nice coincidence for us was we were celebrating our 250th anniversary, which gave us reasons to go back to our history and our founding and double down on who we are as an institution. But we were also, in addition, celebrating an anniversary, the 50th anniversary of co-education. We were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the founding of the Black Alumni Association. We had an anniversary for the Native American Studies Program. 50th. 50th. So those became parts of the campaign and sort of that notion of a big tent is not just the people, but it's the anniversaries and the milestones that happened during the course of the campaign that we were also able to fold in and celebrate and leverage as as the campaign unfolded. A lot of it started with Laurel and the other co-chairs. And I would just say that the other four are really equally mighty, right, Laurel? This is a pretty incredible group, the five of you. But they, you know, these values started with them. And then as they as they sought to build the committee, there was a real commitment to gender equity. So it's 50% women all the way through the campaign, every committee and so on that there was really meant to be representation from the community. And when you start to have that at the committee table, as Laurel said, suddenly questions about the priorities take on a different flavor. The conversation we're having with the academic leadership is slightly different in terms of sharpening propositions, thinking about new markets and opportunities for philanthropic support. And then that led to us learning about different cultures of giving. I'll never forget two of us on the phone with one of our Native American leaders and understanding the giving traditions in his community and how 
we how we if we understood that better it would it would impact how we took the campaign to our native american alumni and that that learning propelled us in so many different directions and it also just final point is it also led to ideas and innovation as much as I and the leadership team at Dartmouth would love to take credit for the women's initiatives that came out of the call to lead. I would say that it, it is completely the work of the women volunteer leaders in the campaign were the laboratory for, for every one of those ideas. And they made it so much better than I think we could have as staff. And, and then we ultimately partnered with them in the execution. But this idea that if you get the right people in the room, the ideas will, will emerge has been one of the great takeaways for me. And I think it all comes back to who's in the room and and who the leadership of the campaign is. It's so true that if the leadership is mirroring the ideas, then it, it it trickles down all the way through. But, you know, to be completely candid, that sounds like it was a pretty challenging thing to do. Was it hard to keep that 50-50 gender goal? Or was it, did it feel natural that you were able to pull that off? It didn't feel hard to me, right? Now, easy for me to say, right? But, you know, I think one of the, the learnings from for me from this campaign is the importance of not making assumptions and entering into conversations and asking people, would they like to be involved? Or we see an opportunity here. Can you help us? So to me, it didn't feel hard. It felt like we were extending genuine, heartfelt, authentic invitations to people. And I, I remember distinctly, there was a point where we we had had the, the gender representation we hadn't done as well in terms of race and ethnicity. And I remember having conversations with people, you know, Bob and I were sort of brainstorming about the calls and we were thinking about we're halfway through the campaign and we're asking them to join us at this halfway mark, not at the beginning how do we how do we have those conversations and we just realized we just have to own it right to say wish this wish this invitation had come earlier i hope you'll meet us with a spirit of grace that we realize that we are not as representative as we would like to be and we hope you'll join us and make us better and those conversations went surprisingly well just because i think we owned it and so therefore it wasn't difficult it was actually right. It was, it was thought we had to be thoughtful, but it was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize it as difficult. I don't know, Bob, how you feel. I agree. I think the talent is there. And I think it was really just about, as it always is, is talented, busy people and persuading them that yeah. this cause could really merit their time. But, it, you know, that's another place where the board chairs credibility and leadership really matters. And those conversations that Laurel was just describing, we had to be really candid. And it really mattered, I think, that she was on the phone. I think it helped that I, as the leader of the program, was on the phone. And I think our commitment and follow through made all the difference. It's amazing to hear you say that. The main reason why I asked is because when we look at fundraising industry, but also boards and leadership across higher ed and really institutions in general, we are seeing a disproportionate amount of men who are leading these things. So I just wondered if that was hard, but it's amazing to hear that, no, you actually just decided you were going to do it differently and the doors opened. That's so that I think that's very inspiring. And I would just tell you that the men are so proud of the Dartmouth women and that's what they've done. I mean, th <laughs> yeah. this is a, kind of a, it's a self-perpetuating cycle and it goes right. even one step further, which is that, you know, the women started to model this circle motif in our Centennial Circle program, which is one of the women's initiatives. 
and there were a group of male entrepreneurs out on the West Coast who kind of imagined an a circle for entrepreneurs, for founders, who were kind of committing a portion of their future wins if they have them. And they completely modeled it on the success of the women's program. So I think, you know, there's a lot of learning back and forth right now. I would be remiss if I did not ask you to share more about the women's initiatives that you have done. I can say as someone removed who is just getting to know the two of you, I have heard from many institutions about what you've done and how they've modeled it and used it as their inspiration. So I'd love to hear from Laurel, your own perspective of how all of this came about. You've really broken records and set the tone for all of this. The first thing I would say is this is a very much a grassroots campaign and catalyst. This was women deciding that they wanted we, um, and I was not part of it as the, at the beginning, which is why I will say I'll stick with they, wanted to come together, really flex their philanthropic muscle for this moment in time, but more importantly, to role model for future generations. And so that was a really important sort of foundational piece. And they wanted to think about and reflect on what inspired them and motivated their giving. They realized sense of community was really important. So the Centennial Circle is as much about the community of women with a shared goal and shared experiences as it is the philanthropic portion and dimension. And also scholarship, right? Many of the women who were initially involved with the Centennial Circle had been beneficiaries of the generosity of others. And so there was a pay it forward piece of that. And there's a mentoring piece. And so they were really thoughtful about the mark they wanted to leave for the future, how to pay forward their own experiences, and how to make the work feel distinctive to their desires and wishes. And, and that's where the community piece became very central. So it gets started and they set some goals and all of a sudden they're blowing through those goals. The campaign is starting to take shape. And then we started to see women stepping up in other areas of the campaign and thought, what if we had set a goal of 25 women each giving a million? And historically, I think our last campaign, how many women had had participated at that level? It was under five, right? It was or it was, it was four, yeah, exactly. It was four. So we're, you know, this is just the audacity of Dartmouth <laughs> women, in my humble opinion, uh, that we go yeah. from like four to twenty-five, right? And I can remember. Well, <laughs> go ahead, Bob. I know you want to chime in <laughs> on that. Well, I was, I was going to say uh, there have been several phone calls I've received about these women's initiatives, but this goal is set, and I. I I said, well, can we can we go back and look at how many this happened in the last campaign just to make sure we're being pragmatic and pragmatic pragmatism kind of goes out the window pretty quickly. And I've learned now not to even raise those questions. Because right now, to to Laurel's point, there were four in the last campaign, and it's 112 women have committed over a million dollars themselves personally in this campaign. And it's it's raised close to four hundred million just from that group alone. It's really it's fundamentally a core piece of the campaign. And I would just say to anybody who has questioned whether, I mean, this was interesting because we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of co-education. And one of the arguments back in the day uh, about going uh, opposed to co-education was that, 
women might not support the institution at the level that men have. And this campaign has absolutely proven that to be incorrect. And the philanthropic voices that are emerging are really powerful. You know, another piece of this women's philanthropic effort was the renovation of Dartmouth Hall, which was the building that Bob referenced earlier that sort of started our, the Dartmouth College Fund many, many years ago. And, And I think I know I speak for the women. We looked at lots of opportunities where we wanted to focus our efforts. And that that building is very symbolic to our campus. It's very symbolic to our history of giving. And we wanted to sort of be the group that took on the renovation of this iconic building. And then the last piece, I promise, but clearly I'm excited about this, is going back to that notion of how do we model the way for next generations? We set a goal of any gift of any size from women in our community would be recognized on our recognition wall in the entrance to the building. And we set a goal of 25,000 and overshot that goal as well. And it was just literally seeing women of all generations. It was a way to bring in students and faculty and staff and alums. And it was one of those moments where your heart just sings because you know that this is something that's going to live well beyond today. Laurel really has cared about that project and really nurtured it. And more than 3,000 women now have, have supported it. It's just incredible. And we were all gathered there for the dedication last month. And It was exhilarating. It was really, really a time for reflection. And it was such an intergenerational moment for Dartmouth women to come together. It will, I think for the people that were there, it will last in their minds for a really long time. Yeah, more than 300 people came back for the celebration, which was of co-education and the opening of this building. So, or the rededication of Dartmouth Hall. That's amazing. It sounds like you've had so many beautiful moments and so many exciting surges and wins throughout this eight-year period and this eight-year partnership. How have the two of you handled stalls or pain points or unexpected turns and how have you supported each other through those? (laughs) Lots of uh, late night calls and sometimes a (laughs) glass of wine comes along with it, right Laurel? Absolutely. Um, No, in all seriousness, if I think about what this partnership means to me, and I think about anyone out in the world of advancement that's that's doing this work and in it, the ability to have a thinking partner who is responsive, who is so empathetic and and creative. Our our best moments have been honestly in the face of some sort of challenge (laughs) when we rise to it. And, you know, I'll give you a great example. And I think, you know, one thing we should, we both want to probably acknowledge is that we are a partnership, but we have a third partner who is president of Dartmouth, Phil Hanlon, and we're often in dialogue, the three of us. And what we were really aware of as the pandemic emerged was that he was, and the rest of the university leadership were really consumed with the response to the, to the pandemic. And what we were asking in the campaign capacity was, where do we go from here? You know, are, are we you know, still in the water, is there an opportunity for us to think about how to rally the community? And it was it was in that moment that Laurel said something to me about, you know, our students really need us. 
and there was there's this kind of real empathetic idea of that and we were getting she and i were both getting phone calls from volunteers eager to help and looking for direction and we started to do the work of the president around creating a commission on financial aid to really understand the long-term implications of the kind of seismic challenges to access and affordability that could be accelerated by the pandemic. And we got an amazing group of volunteers identified that came together, 20 of them, who wrestled with us for 18 months to really understand financial aid today and where it was going. And we, in that period of time, really organized around changing the propositions of Dartmouth. And from that moment where we came up with this idea, I think of a with the president of a presidential commission on financial aid, these aspirations emerged about extending our need blind admissions policy where we meet full financial aid will need to international students to what if we could eliminate loans from, from our um, financial aid packages, replace them with scholarship. In the face of such a challenge, mm. this audaciousness emerged. And I really credit Laurel with encouraging that and stoking it and convening this group every month with the president to, to reflect on this. It gave everybody a sense of purpose. We were all, again, in the canoe paddling forward. And as a result, you know, we've raised close to $500 million in scholarship and utterly changed Dartmouth's financial aid proposition that we can offer today. All those goals have been accomplished. You know, I would, I would agree with you, Bob. That was like a moment of sheer terror, you know, thinking about not only everything happening in the world, but how do you balance your concerns for humanity with we're in the middle of a campaign and we got to keep these engines moving well for the future, right? Because we're, we got to stay focused on the long-term as we deal with an unprecedented current environment. And, and the, the creation of this commission, which I believe Bob was actually your idea, you know, Phil and I were giving inputs and ideas and problems to be solved. And Bob was able to package it in the notion of the creation of a commission that totally changed I think the trajectory of the campaign, it just added a level of purpose and the number of people who chose, I think that also was a catalyst for participation, right? I, I bet if we go back and look at our participation graph, the, our, the, you know, the pitch of that graph before the work of the Presidential Commission on Financial Aid and the pitch of it after would be dramatically different. Thank you both so much for sharing and inspiring all of us. Congratulations on the amazing work that you have done with Call to Lead. I would love to end with my signature question to both of you, which is, what do you know for sure? Well, first, I want to say we're not done yet. So, that, you know, I would, if Bob's <laughs> taught me anything, let me say we have a lot of uh, traction. But for anyone listening, we still have some runway and some things that we that that are we need to put a bow on so that's number one um, the consummate fundraiser <laughs> yeah i've learned that um and it's true by the way so i have two things one is bob has been an amazing visionary for this campaign and while there are lots of people who are involved and lots of people contributing and lots of ideas and lots of support he i don't know what the 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 primary paddling position is in a canoe but he's <laughs> He's in that, I don't know if he's at the front <laughs> of the canoe or the back of the canoe, but he is, he's the architect, right? I know that every campaign needs someone like Bob would be number one. 
And the other thing, a little more tactical is you'll never know the answer if you don't ask the question. You've got to ask what's important to people. You've got to ask um, what does success look like? You've got to ask, how can I help? I sense this isn't what you were expecting. Help me understand where I got off base, right? You got to ask the questions because if you don't ask the questions, you're never going to get the answer or be able to move things forward. I would say that in the course of my career, there are very few things that I know for sure. But the great, the moments of true inspiration have come for me from partnership with volunteer leaders like Laurel. And what I would really just encourage everyone in the professional space to think about is, who's that person for you? Because volunteer leaders bring a sense of commitment and perspective and an understanding of the community that you work with and context and in principle and integrity that for me is the magic of this work. Our partnership, our collaboration will be something that is, you know, reflected in my work going forward. And I will take moments, I will find inspiration in the moments when we're doing the hard work from conversations that I've had with Laurel over time. So this is just the gift that that continues. <laughs> Let's not lose sight of the power of what volunteers bring to campaign work and advancement work and the harmony that we can find in collaborating together because it's 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 really a two plus two equals five in my opinion. And that's not higher education math. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both so much. This has been such a delight and I wish you luck as you close out your work together. Thanks for having us. Catherine, you're providing a really important resource for the field and we really admire what you're doing. Thanks for making time for us. Thank you for tuning in to season 10. This episode proves that inclusion was critical to this campaign success and that leaders at all levels need to be on the same page. To learn more about the Development Debrief, follow us on Instagram at devdebrief and on LinkedIn. I would love to hear from you. See you next week. Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand, original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. We're thrilled to feature the development debrief on Evertrue Studios Podcast Network. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios.